when you were talking about this morning over breakfast or whatever it was, or even last night, did you process through it and say, well, we could go here, we could go there, or maybe we could go here? Or did you say, when your friend or spouse or, or child said to you, let's go to church this morning, was it automatic? And when you said yes, that meant you were coming to center point. Listen, if that's the case, then this is your church, right? This is your church. This is your family. I encourage you, if that's the case, then make it official and become a member of Centerpoint Bible Church. You might say, well, membership isn't in the Bible. I can't find that in the Bible. Well, first of all, I'd be willing to sit down with you and talk, have that conversation, okay? But, but let, me, let me give you another reason why I want to encourage you to make Centerpoint officially your church. In Hebrews 13, um, listen what the Word of God says in verse number 17. Now, listen to all the way to the end, because the thing I want you to hear is actually the last sort of sentence of what I'm going to read to you. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, listen. Let them do this with joy, and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Do you hear what the writer is calling us to? It's to our advantage as a body. It's to our advantage to place ourselves under the authority of other people. It truly is. And the thing that I find about, interesting about this is let them, speaking of our leaders, let them do this with joy. Listen, when you, when you become a part of Central Bible Church, I want you to know, as, as one of your pastors, it is a joy for me. I, I am just overwhelmed with joy when you say, this is my church, and I'm going to be a part of this body of believers. It brings joy to my heart, and it does the rest of the leadership too. And that is to your advantage, is what Hebrews says. That when your leaders feel a joy about what's happening in the body, it's to your advantage. Today, after our service, we're going to have a meeting to talk about um, kind of where we've been through 2019 to today, and then what's going to happen in the future. And we're going to answer some questions that I know that you're going to want to have access to. We're going to look at some important things about our financial picture for 2020, but we're also going to talk about what is ministry going to look like when we move back to our new facility, back to the heart of Spring Mills. We're still moving towards being over there by mid-March, okay? That's our goal, and it's still attainable, okay? As you pray and as God leads, it's still attainable that we can be back over there in Spring Mills uh, prior to Easter. And so you be praying with us. We're going to talk about that in our congregational meeting today. And I want to thank you that came out on Wednesday night. We had a great group out on Wednesday night. I was honestly, I was expecting like 10 people. I really was. I, because we just put out just a little bit of an email. I didn't really explain it much. We just said, hey, we're going to meet at the building. If you want to have some information about, about what we're doing there and about the renovations, come on out. And there were about 40 people that made it out that night to just hear about what's happening. Your excitement is a joy to me. It really is. It's, an excite, it's just exciting for me to see God working in the body and that we're, getting, we're excited about what the Lord is doing and what the opportunities that he's laid before us. And so I encourage you to stay today. I encourage you to, to move towards relationship here at Centerpoint Bible Church. Move towards the body.
Don't, don't shrink back. Don't shrink back and resist relationship. Move towards other people. That's where you'll find the true experience of following Christ. Well, we're going to open up God's Word in just a moment, and um, we're going to be in the book of Jonah. And I, I hope you've been with us through this study. We've been studying the book of Jonah. We've made it through chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we're going to get to chapter 3 today. And the thing about Jonah that, that I just want to start with is the, is the concept, the reality of, of our God and what he has communicated to us. You know, our relationship with Christ, you, if you want to call it Christianity, if you, want to, if you want to call it being a saved or a follower of Jesus, what, whatever term that you want to give, kind of this cluster of truth that we have built our lives upon, I want you to know that it is built, it's built upon historical truth. It's built upon history. It's built upon truth and fact. We're going to see today things that God inspired his authors to write down. We're going to see today the words that Jesus expressed. These are factual words. Emotion is important. Feelings and, and, and so forth, that's valuable. But our relationship with God is built upon fact. It's built upon truth. It's built upon evidence. And I encourage you to seek that out. We, we're so driven by emotion. We're so driven by how I feel and what I think of this particular day. But Christianity, our relationship with Christ, our, our connection with God is built upon truth. Look what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. We'll put it up on the screen. About, about the account of Jonah about the prophet Jonah and what he experienced. Jesus said, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now we know that, that what Jesus is going to continue to explain in the Gospels is he's, he's showing us that this is a historical fact. Jesus believed that Jonah was a real person who was swallowed up by a real fish, was spit out upon the real ground, and was there in the water on the way to Sheol, either death or nearly there, for three days. Jesus believed this. But that's not the only historical fact that Jesus is alluding to. Jesus believed in the reality of his resurrection because he said, just like Jonah was in, the, was in Sheol for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will do the same. The reality of the resurrection. But notice what else Jesus points to. And you may not realize it, but you just sang about this. You just sang about the second impossible thing, and I would say much more impossible than a great fish is the second reality that Jesus is going to allude to. Look what he says here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation that he's speaking to and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Listen, you just sang about an impossible thing. 
You sang, and, and in that song, you saw that, the, that you were reminded through the words of miracles that we can read about in the Bible. And it's real easy to get excited about those. It's real easy to get emotional about those and have kind of positive feelings about blind, seeing, about deaf, hearing, and all that kind of stuff. And listen, that is great and fine, and, and we should praise God over that kind of miraculous activity. But let me tell you about an everyday miracle that blows those out of the water, and that is when a sinner repents. Repentance is impossible on our own. You and I cannot do it on our own. I mean, consider this. The Bible describes that in the presence of the angels, there is celebration at times. You know that? There in the throne room of God, where God and his angels are, there's celebration. Now, what is it that they celebrate about? Is it when somebody is healed? Is it when the blind can see? When the deaf can hear? Is it when you hit that green light and find that amazing parking place? Is that when they celebrate in the throne room of God? No. It's over one sinner who repents. Wow. That causes celebration in the presence of God. Go with me to Jonah, the book of Jonah. In my Bible, which looks like this, and that's the one that's in the back of the room, um, it's on page 775. Go to the middle and turn right. It's one of the 12 minor prophets. Um, Remember the Howard Johnsons and orange juice? That'll get you to Jonah, okay? So fine, it's the fifth of the 12 minor prophets. Go to the book of Jonah, and let's just kind of review where we've been, and then I want to let you know where we're going today, and then we're going to go there, okay? So we've seen this, this kind of God has demonstrated some truth about himself. Just for review, I'll put them up on the screen. We, we've seen God's sovereign control over all things. That God is sovereign over all. And we saw at least 10 miracles in the book of Jonah. I've already had some of you have come to me and said, hey, you said 10 a couple weeks ago, but I found 12, or I found 13, or I found 4. That's well and fine, okay? You're probably right. But there's many, many miracles in the book of Jonah, God's sovereign control over all things, over the sea, over the sailors, over a whale, over a weed, over a worm, over a wind. We saw God reigning sovereign over all these things and doing miracles at his every moment desire. God can do this or that anytime he wants to. This is what sovereignty is. We can't understand sovereignty. There is no other sovereign in all the world. Oh, kings may call themselves sovereign. Caesar may have called himself sovereign, but he's not sovereign. How do I know? Because he's dead. God is sovereign over all things. The second thing that we saw is God's sanctifying work in his people. And this is what we looked at over the last couple weeks together, looking at the first two chapters of Jonah, that God is working on Jonah before he's ever going to work on the pagans. God is chipping away Jonah's heart. God told Jonah to go, and Jonah said what? Nope, I'm not going that way. I'm not doing that. And literally went in the opposite direction. Praise the Lord, God didn't give up on Jonah. He gave him a second chance. I came across this story today. I thought it was interesting or this week, that is. There, there, a person wrote about a General Motors uh, Corporation um, interview process for the executive position. You interested in being an executive at General Motors? Okay, maybe, maybe you're not, but 
But here's what this article explained, and this just fascinated me. They were talking about how this, you should keep this in mind, okay? They were talking about the interview process for these executives, and, and the, the point of the article was from the moment they met them, from the moment the interviewers met the individuals, they were being interviewed all the time, and they didn't even know it. And so one of the things they would do is they would go to lunch together. So they meet the individual, maybe at the airport or whatever, and they say, let's sit down for lunch. And now the interviewers, they're just one person, this one man or woman. They've traveled far distance. They're, they're trying to work at GM, okay, and they've got this group of people interviewing them. And they don't know this is going on. Of course, they read this article. Now they can figure it out. But they're watching what they do when they sit down for lunch. And they said this, if they salted their soup before tasting it, this demonstrated that they were unhirable for the position. If they salted their soup before tasting it, it demonstrated they were unhirable for the executive position. Why? Because it demonstrated the behavior of one who makes decisions before having the facts. Seriously? Are you serious? I just wanted to put salt on my soup. The article said this, one false move and they were out. Listen, aren't you glad that God isn't that way? Jonah said, no, and ran away. And God chased him down with a giant fish. Now, he may not chase you down with a giant fish, but he will chase you down because he is like a father, and he loves us. And so we're going to get today to the supernatural gift of repentance. That's what we want to talk about today. Um, we're going to see that, that the Lord does a miracle in hearts. And the place where he's going to do it is not where you might expect. He's not going to do this great miracle completely in Jonah's heart, although it is somewhat there. He's going to do it in the Ninevites' heart. Now, we don't understand the, the city of Nineveh. Wikipedia, that, you know, ultimate source of information, said that in the 6th century B.C., Nineveh was the greatest city of the world. That's according to Wikipedia. According to Dan Carlin, hardcore history on the fall of Nineveh, he says the Ninevites were the Nazis of the old world. They were the original sort of actors out of genocide. They are wiping out people, and God says, you go there. And I, that's great, but I want us to see what it says in Jonah 3. Look with me at verse number 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. That should sound very familiar because it is very similar to Jonah 1.1. It is very, very similar to the first time God called Jonah. Listen to the grace of God. We're going to see God's message for sinners and saints. Now he's bringing a message to a saint, Jonah. And he's giving him another opportunity, a second chance. I know you salted the soup, but I'm still going to give you a chance. And watch what happens. So Jonah arose. And now what's he going to do? The last time he rose, he went to Joppa, and he hired out a boat and went to Tarshish. But now he goes to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. 
Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Wikipedia says the greatest city of the time period. Three days journey in breath. This meant that if you walk from one side to the other, it take three days to do it. How far can you walk in, in a day? Three days to get across. Hundreds of thousands of people. Don't picture some little like, you know, back sort of in the country, kind of like that kind of a, you know, rural setting. Don't picture that. This is in an urban environment with, with towering buildings and walls and, and industry there in this huge city. So Jonah goes there. He began to go into the city, going a day's journey. So he went maybe a third of the way across, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I told you earlier, that's five words in the Hebrew. His sermon in Jonah 3, the the sermon that Jonah shares is five words in the Hebrew. Now, I don't think for a second that's all he said. I think he said a whole lot more than that. And the reason why I believe that is what happens. Because it takes, listen, back to where we started. It takes facts. It takes truth. It takes historical statements. It takes God's word for people to respond. So Jonah did more than just five days and then it was going to fall. He did more than that. He preached. But look what happened. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called out for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And the passage goes on to explain how the king of Nineveh, he, he, he totally turns to the Lord. And you see this expression of this in his life, and it is overwhelming to see what happened in the Ninevites' heart. There was a great work of God. So what I want to look at today is I, I want to, we're in the book of Jonah, we're in chapter 3, but I thought it'd be fitting for us today to kind of stop and understand what is God's message for us. What is his message for us? What, and why is it so crucial that we share his message? Why is Jonah going to Nineveh? Why is God sending him to the greatest city in the world at that point? Why does it even matter? And when he gets there, what is he to communicate? Now, to understand this, I want to go to what I've called, I'm going to look at two passages kind of in support of what happens in Genesis 3. I want to show you, I want us now to be able to look at the truth of God's Word for us to now be able to, to take the full counsel of God to understand what is happening in Jonah 3. There is a miraculous activity that's happening in Jonah 3 in men's hearts. I want us to understand that. And then next week, we will look at it in particular of, of the rest of what happened there in Nineveh. So what I want to do now is I want to pull back away from Jonah 3, and I want us to understand what's really happening in men's hearts, what's really happening in Jonah's heart, what's really happening in the Ninevites' heart. And what I hope will happen is that it may happen in your heart. In your heart. I told you, if I was going to pick a verse to represent the book of Jonah, I would pick it 2 Peter 3.9. Put it up on the screen, and let's, let's look what it says. 
Now, let's think about the, the story, the account of Jonah, and, and let's think about these words that's, that Peter wrote. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. The Ninevites knew who the Jewish God was. They'd been taking Hebrews captive for hundreds of years. I'm sure others said to them that if you are evil to us, our God will be evil to you. They didn't believe it was going to happen. Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. I'm sure the Ninevites are like, oh, yeah, sure, Jonah, some of them. Oh, yeah, 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 God is going to rain down on us because of our evil. You've been telling us that for hundreds of years. Listen, God's slowness is not the way that you might think it is. Look what it says. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Listen, there is a reality here that we have to accept. We have to see from God's word a reality that I want to hit us with today. It's it's what was going on in Jonah's heart. And it's this reality that there are two never-ending destinies for all creatures. And they're laid out here in this Peter passage. There are only two destinies. Now hear this, because this is supposed to break our hearts. It's supposed to drive us to worship and gratitude for what God has done. Look what is laid out here. Two possibilities. One, perish. The other, repentance. There's only two possibilities. Perish, or I'm going to say paradise. That's it. There is no third option. Jonah understood this. He understood about what God was saying to these people of Nineveh. And listen, this brings up things that we don't really to think about. We don't really to talk about. But I just want to walk through what the Word of God says about perishing. About people perishing. This brings up things like the soul and the body in hell. Every one of these things I'm going to say are coming straight out of Scripture. I gave you all the references on your worship notes. You can look them up later. Okay, I made one mistake. See if you can find it. I wrote Matthew when I was supposed to write Mark. See if you can find it. Okay? The soul and the body in hell. Where, the, where even the evil will be, rec- will be resurrected Listen, people who are right now in Sheol, waiting, waiting, they have rejected God, and they will one day be resurrected to life. All people that you know, everyone who has ever existed, will have a never-ending destiny. They are a never-ending soul. And John chapter 5 talks about those who are righteous are raised for a righteousness and those who are not are raised to judgment. The same terms used for those who are in heaven and those who will just say are in hell. That they will one day have a resurrected body. These things are heavy. This is what perishing means where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where the fire is never quenched. 
It is described as an unquenchable fire, an eternal fire, a place of outer darkness, a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, where people are thrown alive into this lake of fire, that they have no rest day or night, that this place was prepared for the devil and his angels, not for man. This place was not created for man. It was created for the devil and the angels. But when man rebelled against God, God had no option but for that to be his never-ending destiny. And the worst place potentially of this whole concept is that it is away from the presence of the Lord where Jesus uses the exact same word to describe the eternal nature of heaven. He uses the exact same Greek word for the eternal nature of hell. Peter says, God is not slow in keeping his promise. Not, no, not at all. He's patient. Not wanting, and now he brings before us a dichotomy. There's not three, there's two. There's only two. I know we don't like two. Nobody in our culture likes two. Because nobody wants to accept that an option is not acceptable or less than another. But there is a dichotomy. There is a binary set of choices. Perish or paradise. Perish or repentance. Jonah understood this. Do we? Do we? Perish is not some place where things are finally taken away and destroyed, where they no longer exist. God made you and I and every human being in his image. In the image of God, God made man. And that image is not a physical image. God the Father, God doesn't look like us. The Spirit of God doesn't look like us. That image is his eternal, never-ending nature. That's who we human beings are. Jonah understood this. Do you? Do you? Do I? Do we? Or do we get so distracted by the things of this world? We just so, our, our eyes just so quickly, we need those blinders like you put on horses because we so quickly run over here and look at this and look at that and forget and forget. C.S. Lewis in some of his writings, well, the great divorce, if you've, ever, if you've ever read it, it's not about a divorce. It's about eternity. It's a challenging read. You don't sit down and get through this in an hour. It's a very thin book, probably about 60 pages. But he says this. If you and I were to meet an individual one million years from now, we would be so overwhelmed. This is a major paraphrase, but we'd be so overwhelmed with the specter of what we would see. We would be either tempted to worship them because of their glory or tempted to run in fear because of their overwhelming presence of evil that was there residing in them. Heaven or hell, he says, 
would overwhelm the human in our natural state. Peter says, perish or repent. Now, this is what's going on in the heart of Jonah. I want to see now what happens in the heart of the Ninevites, okay? And to get there, I want to remind you of something. Um, Put the Luke passage up on the screen, if you would. Do you guys remember when we talked about the Great Commission? Remember this? What, What is this? Do you remember this? There are one, two, three, four, five expressions of the Great Commission. Who remembers this? Anybody? A hand? Nobody. Wow, you guys, I tell you what. We talked about the Great Commission, and we said you can think of it this way. Everybody look at your left hand, okay? Hold your left hand up, assuming you have five fingers. This will work for you, okay? The Great Commission. There's five expressions of the Great Commission. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts all express Jesus' final call to his believers, all right? And the way I encourage you to think about it was this. Watch now. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Okay? Remember this? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Five of them. We said it spanned from 40 days from John to Acts. Remember this? Okay? Some of you do. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. 40 days. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. Some of this is review. We, we talked about this at length. We said that John provides the model. It provides the model. Just as Jesus was sent, he sent us, empowered by God's Spirit. We said Mark was the method that we're to go to all of creation. Everybody needs the gospel. We said that Matthew was the goal. Go make disciples of all nations. I'm going to skip Luke for just a minute. And we said Acts. Acts was the the response that he gives us the Spirit. Now go, now go, now go. Now here's the thing about the Great Commission. Think about this for a minute. The Great Commission is Jesus' call. I hope you're familiar with this. If not, just listen, okay? The Great Commission is Jesus' directive to his believers. Go, make disciples, be my witnesses, go into all the earth. As I, as I was sent by the Father, I send you. But here's the funny thing about the commission. Here's the funny thing about the commission. There's five times, remember that? Five times. You take out this one, take off Luke, And we don't know what to preach. We don't know what to preach. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the the age. Remember that? We quote it every day after church, every Sunday. But what do we preach? Go Go into all the world. Acts says, be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But what do we say? What do we preach? What do we herald? Luke has the message. Luke has the message. Look at it with me. Look at Luke 24. You can turn in your Bible there, or you can read it on the screen. It says, then Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them this, thus it is written, Here it comes, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. There are three things here connected by the conjunction and. And I don't want to insult you, but listen to the definition of the word and. 
<laughs> okay? I want to define for you and. Listen, what is, listen to the definition. Used as a function word to indicate connection or addition, especially of items within the same class or type. There are three things that Jesus said that we are to preach. And they are connected with a word that functions to indicate connection or addition, especially of items within the same class or type. Do you see the three? Do you see the three? You've got to have all three. And I'm afraid that we've lost the third, folks. Before I tell you what the three are, as you're looking at them, let me say this. Skeptics have taken away the suffering of Christ. Oh, he, did, he wasn't really God. He didn't really go to the cross. Skeptics have taken that away. Skeptics have taken away the resurrection. Oh, he wasn't really resurrected from the dead. That's impossible. That could have never have happened. But we have taken away the third. We, believers, have shrunk back from the third. Jonah preached it because they did it. What are the three? What is the gospel? Number one, the cross. The cross. Let's pretend that you invited me or, or, or I was going someplace else to, to, to do an evangelistic message. We worked hard to invite all of our friends, our unsaved neighbors, our, our family members. We brought them all here. We packed the house. And I came up front to preach an evangelistic message. And I didn't mention the cross. What would you say? Would you say, oh, you didn't, you didn't preach the gospel? Yeah, you'd say that. Okay, let's, let's, let's go to the second day. You bring back your friends, they're all packed in a room, and I get up front and I, and I preach and I teach. I don't mention the resurrection. Did I preach the gospel? No, I didn't. But do we adequately represent the third? Repentance. Now, the cross, I, I, I want to I just sort of hit this just quickly. What is meant here by the suffering of Christ? It says in Luke chapter 24 that the Christ, we're supposed to go and preach that the Christ should suffer. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that encompass? It encompasses the who, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the God-man, the perfect man, the ruler, the creator, the Lord, the master. That's who he is. He is the God-man, God in the flesh. He came to the earth, miracle of all miracles, the incarnation. Christ suffered. The how, how did he suffer? He went to the cross on our behalf, a penal, substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? In our place, he died for our sins. That's what the suffering of Christ is. If we take that away, we take away the gospel. And why did he do this? Because we are sinners. Because our nature is to violate the law of God, to violate the character of God. And the consequence of that sin is perishing. This is all encompassed in Christ's suffering. The second thing, the resurrection. 
What does the resurrection encompass? It encompasses the fact of the resurrection, that he did resurrect, that he proved he was God by, by conquering death, by conquering sin, by conquering Satan. Jesus beat death, showing that he's God, showing that he's victorious. And that means that you and I, in Christ, can have a victorious life in Jesus. That we will one day be resurrected to life. I think many of us think the gospel stops there. But that's not where Scripture stops. No. Saving faith cannot be divorced from repentance over sin. So what is it What is this repentance unto forgiveness? What is it that in our fear we're shirking back and sometimes not even sharing the gospel? Listen, this is no small thing. Repentance is is no accessory to add to your walk with Christ. It's no add-on, no trivial matter, no thing that we can just skip over. Think of what the gospel truly does. The gospel turns a rebel sinner from this this direction of indifference to God, not caring about God, not caring about his ways, and miraculously forgives him or her and then transforms them into a follower of Christ in whom the glory of God matters, the way of God matters, the ways of God matters, the word of God matters. This is a miracle of regeneration. It's more than just a couple facts. It's a change. I want to talk for a moment about repentance and the fact, again, that forgiveness is inseparable from it. And listen, I... I, I'm convicted, as I have been studying this, that even in my preaching, I've shied away from this. And this may be why it is that we see so many in the church who don't really reflect Christ, because they may not be in Christ. What is repentance? It's literally a change of minds, but don't let that don't let that be the complete answer. It includes sorrow, but it is more than that. Sorrow will always proceed and accompany repentance, but in itself it is not repentance. There are very few people in our culture today who would not admit that they are sinners. We are quick to say, "Oh yes, I've done wrong." I have encountered one individual in my gospel life who told me that they had never sinned in his belief. One guy who told me that in all of my time of following Jesus, I interacted with one individual who actually said, I have never sinned. He's with Christ today. Later he became convicted of his sin and put his trust in Jesus and died a wicked death of cancer, and right now is with the Lord. 
So sorrow and knowledge is not enough. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 10 says that grief produces repentance. So there is a knowledge and there is a sorrow of sin, but that must not be mistaken for repentance. It is more than awareness of sin. People have no problem admitting they're a sinner. It's a change of mind about sin, which produces a change in life pursuit. In Matthew chapter 21, there's these two boys, and their dad tells them to do something. And one says, sure, Dad, I'll do it, but doesn't do it. And the other one says, I'm not doing that, Dad. But then changes his mind and goes and does it. That's repentance. Now, I got a statement for you. Put it up on the screen. And, and this is, listen, there's a lot of big words here, okay? I'm going just, just to just mention this. This is, this is a definition of repentance written in 1647, okay? But just, let's just check out what it says. Repentance unto life is God's saving grace. Now, don't you churchify that word. Here's what this means. It's a gift of God. God has to do this. We're going to see in Scripture today that God has to do this. Whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth, that's not a word we use too often, but hey, that was their word, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Folks, that's what that's what. I'm sorry, repentance is. So let me just act it out for you. Here's repentance. Repentance is awareness of sin. I've done wrong. I've sinned against God. I've stolen, I've I've cheated, I've lusted, I've murdered, I've, I've... Whatever you want to say, I've gossiped, uh, whatever, pick it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because I'm broken before God over it. I see the mercy of God that he offers me forgiveness. And I know who he is. I know this is not his way. And so I turn from me and I say, oh, God, I hate this sin. I hate it. I hate it because you do. I hate it because it wrongs you. I hate it because it's not your way. God, rid me of it. Take it away from me. Cut this cancer out of me. And I turn towards him, and there's forgiveness. This is what repentance is. Listen, you see it all through the book of Acts. I I'm way out of time here because I got more things to say, but let me just, let me go through in the book of Acts how they lived out what Jesus said. Remember, let's review for a minute, okay? Luke chapter 24 is one of the Great Commission passages. Who is that Great Commission given to? It's given to the disciples. The disciples, also often referred to as the apostles, they live after that. If you want to see what they do, you read the book of The Acts of the Apostles. The book of Acts is actually called the Acts of the Apostles. So when you read the book of Acts, you see this is what they did. I gave you a whole list of verses, a whole list of passages in Acts. Let me tell you what these men 
and women went out of there and preached. Let's, let's take a moment and look at one, okay? Just bear with me. Go to Acts chapter 2. It's too good. It's too good for me to just to skip on by it. It will illustrate what it is that I'm trying to express today for us as believers and for those in the room that may not be believers. Listen, I go to Acts 2. Listen to my own testimony. I was in church all of my life. I want to crawl down out of here and grab somebody by the ears and say, listen to me. I was in church all of my life. I heard about the cross and I heard about the resurrection. And I heard this all the time. I knew every Sunday school story. I, I knew all the papers. I knew it all. And just this week, God opened up my eyes to what it was that I got saved. I know now when it was I got saved. I know what the change was. It was the preacher who preached that day told us of repentance. I had heard of the cross. I had heard of the resurrection. But I didn't realize that I needed to repent. I needed to turn from my own sin and say, God, I don't want that trash anymore. I want you. And that's what happened that day. You've heard me share my testimony before. You've heard this. I'm 15, 16 years old. I'm not sure which summer it was. And that's the day that somebody slipped into my dead church and told us what repentance was. And I got saved. It may be that some of you have skirted around this thing for 50 years. You've been hearing about the cross. You've been hearing about the resurrection. And you're like, man, it's not having any effect in my life. This thing just must be dead because I didn't really believe it. Have you repented? Have you said, God, my sin puts you there and I hate it. And so I turned from it to you. I want you. I want to obey you. Did you find Acts 2 yet? Did you find Acts 2? Look at it with me, okay? Look at verse 36. This is the end of Peter's first message. All right? This is him living out Luke 24. This is him living out the Great Commission. Okay? This is the Great Commission. This is ring finger of the Great Commission. Look what he says. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. He's speaking to the Jewish people. Okay? And he says, he was here and you killed him. You killed him. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Feel that. And they said to, the, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, let's just talk about this for a minute. Repent. Turn from who you are and what you've done. Be baptized. Say, what is that talking about? Here's what he's saying. You guys just crucified Jesus. You're chasing us around. You want to crucify all the followers of Jesus. You be baptized. You mark yourself with him. That's what baptism was. He says, you, you let the whole world know you're one of his. That's what that means. You turn from your sin and mark yourself with Christ. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And with many words, verse 40, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. He said, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is what the gospel is. You knew it, didn't you? You knew it. I knew it all along. I knew it wasn't, it couldn't be. It couldn't be just this simple idea that, that, that Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected and now I go to heaven forever. It was a silly nursery story. It was a fable. I knew it couldn't be true. That can't be. God was convicting me. I remember as a kid, I remember as a 14-year-old child, a teenager now, coming to my parents and saying, how can I know that when I die, I will go to heaven? How can I know? My parents weren't believers. They didn't know. They would say, you go on back to bed. The simple fact that you're worried about it means you're fine. We're all Christians. Don't worry, Mickey. Go back to bed. I remember that night, three times coming in their bedroom. They're probably like, who is this weirdo, right? It was God. God. A couple of things I want to say, but I'm out of time. Repentance is not an act of God. It's not an act of man. You don't repent in your strength. This is not a work. Look at the passages I gave you. It's always a work of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26 would be a great place for us to go. 2 2, 24 to 26. Look what it says. Oh, man. My, my eyes haven't repented. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26 says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now listen to this, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. If God is working in your heart today to repent, that is him. That's not you. You don't repent because you're a nice guy. You repent because God's Spirit does a work in your heart. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's an impossible miracle that a man or a woman says, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, and I don't want to be. That's a miracle. You're dead in your sins. You are in the grave dead. You can't respond to truth. Dead men don't respond. It's a miracle of God that he does this work in our hearts, and we say, Revive me. Have you repented? There's a song on the radio. Radio. Boy, that just aged me, didn't it? There's a song that we listen to and through different devices today. I want you to hear the words of it, and I want you to have some discernment. Give me a minute here. Here's what it says. Be careful where you get your theology. Now listen, I like this song. I, I really do. It's, it's a good song. 
But you know, in songs, we have this thing we do where we get like one phrase and we say it over and over and over and over and over. Does that happen to you? They call that an earworm. Okay, that ever happened to you? Yeah, me too. It just won't go away, right? You go around your house singing it, and everybody's got the same earworm. It's funny how that happens. Now listen to the non-earworm part of this song. No matter what you've done, he can't erase his love. Nothing can change it. You're not separated. No matter where you run, he's always holding on. You're still a daughter. You're still a son. No matter what you've done, you can't erase his love. Nothing can change it. You're not separated no matter what. There's never been a better time to get honest. There's never been a better time to get clean. So come as you are. Run to the cross and be free. Oh, be free. And that's some beautiful words, right? That's some beautiful words. But that's not the earworm. The earworm, and I wish I can't get the tune right now. I should call my wife and have her sing it for us, but I can't get the tune. But the earworm is this. No matter what, no matter what you've done, no matter what, no matter what, no matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. This is what you get from the earworm. And what struck me about this today is this. Although it is true that no matter what you've done, the grace of God is sufficient and he will forgive you. And if you're in Christ, you are eternally his, preserved in him forever. But I have never heard a Christian ever in all of my life say to me, it don't matter what I've done. I hear him say things like this. I know who I was. I know how wicked I was. I know the decisions I made. All the memories, they still come back and I hate it. It matters what I did. I've turned from it and been forgiven. Listen, it matters what we did. It matters what we did. It matters. It broke our relationship with God. And Jesus Christ carried it to the cross. And let the weight of that fill up our worship. And if you're not in Christ today, Let the weight of that drive you to him for forgiveness. It matters what we did. But he does offer forgiveness no matter what you've done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, would you wake us up to your truth? What is repentance, Lord? You've shown us in your word. We see it all through your word. Lord, we think back to the Ninevites. They responded with huge acts of repentance. They turned from their wickedness and turned towards you. God, wake us up to that reality and let us not shrink back from it. Help us to know how to express this to others, but probably more important this morning, help us know how to express it to ourselves that we would not give ourselves some kind of a free reign to live any way we want to. We would understand that it does matter. It does matter. Nothing was separated from the love of God. We know that, Lord, but it matters. May we strive for you and strive for your grace and strive for obedience in you as your sons and your daughters. 
We thank you for your grace, Lord. This gift that you've given us. And we cry out like that justified sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.